Pilgrim's Progress, my favorite book of all time, and should be your favorite book. For why, said he, should you choose life, seeing it is attended with so much bitterness? But they desired him to let them go. With that, he looked ugly upon them, and rushing to them, had doubtless made an end of them himself, but that he fell into one of his fits and lost for a time the use of his hand. Wherefore, he withdrew and left them as before to consider what to do. Then did the prisoners consult between themselves whether it was best to take his counsel or not, and thus they began to discourse. Brother, said Christian, what shall we do? The life that we now live is miserable. For my part, I know not whether it is best to live or to die out of hand. My my soul chooseth strangling rather than life, and the grave is more easy for me than his dungeon. Shall we be ruled by the giant? Hope responds, indeed, our present condition is dreadful, and death would be far more welcome to me than thus forever to abide. But yet, let us consider the Lord of the country to which we are going. So this morning, as we consider the subject of personal testimony, I want us to think about the way that faith talks to Christian there. This life is full of of many challenges, and yet as Christians, we are invited to, just like faith said, let us consider the one to whom we are going. And so just as last week, we talked about how we must internalize the gospel. We must remember that we have been saved by much, by God's grace and his kindness. So too, we get to share that grace with others. As a quick recap from last week, uh, we, we considered the, the brief schematic God-man-Christ response as a tool for sharing the gospel. And so we remembered that God is the eternal creator who is holy and wholly just in his character. Man was created by God to reflect his glory and character in the world, but rebelled against God's rule and what the Bible calls sin. The Bible teaches that this sin was passed on to all of mankind and separated man from God. And remember, we talked about how more than just enslavement to sin, man also stands under the eternal judgment of God's wrath against sin. But because of God's predetermined love for man, he sent his son Jesus, who was fully God, into the world to take on the form of human flesh. And when he lived a perfect life, he offered his life as a sufficient sacrifice for sins by dying on the cross in place of sinners and bearing the penalty of man's sin. After dying, we know that Jesus was buried. He lay in the grave for three days. But after those three days, he was resurrected by the power of the spirit. And then he ascended to God where he now sits at the right hand of God as Lord over the entire universe. So all who desire to receive the gift of salvation that Jesus accomplished must repent. That is, turn from their sins trust in Christ's sufficient work, recognize that they are an old creation that has been made new in Christ. And so everyone who believes this truth is one whom God has saved by his grace. And as we consider our topic this morning, we'll see that as one who is saved, we can testify to what God has done for us. This, in a sense, is that personal testimony. As you see at the top of your handout there from Psalm 66, the psalmist says, come and hear all you who fear God. And I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Specifically, because this is, as I mentioned, an equipping class, the goal is not just to talk about what personal testimonies are, but the ways in which you and I, as believers in Christ, can employ them as a tool for sharing the gospel. 
just as we did last week, I'm going to pause throughout at various points to ask questions. So if you have a question come up from something I'm sharing or from something you see in the text that we'll be considering, make sure to take a note of it so that when I pause, um, you'll have uh, the time to, to ask your question. I want to begin by uh, comparing and contrasting um, this kind of caricature of a personal testimony. I'm sure many thoughts maybe come to your mind when you think about a personal testimony. I'm going to talk a little bit uh, in just a minute about uh, even just the, how it's a little bit of a misnomer to call it personal. Um, but think about this example. I, he- I heard this example from a pastor once. Unfortunately, it's only slightly exaggerated. This is somebody's personal testimony. They said, my life used to be in shambles. I was a wreck. I used to do X, Y, and Z. You wouldn't believe some of the stuff that I did. I found my meaning in the opposite sex. But Jesus died on the cross to change my life. Now I thank God that I am not like those old friends. I live a good life. I wake up with purpose every day. I volunteer. I sponsor a kid at the local Boys and Girls Club. And oh, did I mention that I now have a beautiful Christian spouse too? The good news is that you can have this life too. What's the problem with this personal testimony? That's, that's exactly right. Lisa said that the, the problem is that it's fundamentally about them. It's not about what God has done. It's kind of a self-help narcissism that you find in any sort of book at Barnes & Noble. Just add a twist of God. And so this morning, as we consider the topic, I think it's important that we understand what a personal testimony is and what it is not. As a matter of definition, we're defining a personal testimony as the story of how you came to be reconciled to God through the gospel. The story of how you came to be reconciled to God through the gospel. Now, personal testimony is a fine way to describe God's work of salvation in our lives, but we must also be careful not to place the emphasis on the word personal. Salvation is entirely a work of God. And when we share our testimonies, we are simply testifying to the work of grace that God has done in our life. Just as Lisa responded, the problem with this personal testimony caricature that I share with you is that all of the emphasis is on the person. It's on their life. It's not on what God has done for them. So we, also, we must remember that, that these personal testimonies are first and foremost a testament to the grace that God has given And they're also not personal in the sense that we are to keep it to ourselves. You know, in this day and age where everything has become personalized, um, we can can understand that word personal to mean that's that's my personal thing. That's my personal idea. That's my personal possession. And that means that nobody has access to it. Again, where it's helpful to define our terms is to recognize that a personal testimony, because it's a a testament of what God has done for us, it necessarily needs to be shared. And so it's not personal in the sense that we are to keep it to ourselves. And this morning, some of what we're talking about is to try to convince you that you need to share your personal testimony with others, that it's not something that we should simply keep to ourselves. As one pastor said, most people do not come to Christ as an immediate response to a sermon they heard in a crowded setting. They come to Christ because of the influence of an individual. In the overwhelming majority of new believers' testimonies, they tell us that they came to Christ primarily because of the testimony of a coworker, a neighbor, a relative, or a friend. There's no question that one of the most effective means for bringing people to Christ is one at a time on an individual basis. 
a little bit later, we're going to reflect on the story of the woman at the well from John chapter 4. And in this story, we witness a miraculous work of salvation in the life of a woman. And then the way that she consequently shares that testimony of what God has done for her with those in her town. So again, a personal testimony is the story of how you came to be reconciled to God through the gospel. But as I hinted at earlier, a personal testimony is not the gospel. Just as we talked about last week with God-man-Christ's response, God-man-Christ's response is a super effective way and a super effective tool for sharing the gospel. But in and of itself, just left at the theological level, it is not the gospel itself. We must proclaim with words what Jesus has done. And in the same way, personal testimonies are not the gospel themselves. In Matthew 28, Jesus commissions Christians to go and make disciples. In other words, to share the gospel with people and then to call them to repentance and faith. Jesus brings Christians into the Great Commission to tell them about, to tell others about what he has accomplished on the cross. That is his charge. It's not an option. Evangelism, as we have said several times, is the act of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So even though we are dedicating a whole class to it this morning, we don't want you to think that sharing your personal testimony should ever be a substitute for sharing the true gospel. Sharing your testimony without sharing the gospel, it's like if you had a huge gash on your arm and you just tried to cover it with a Band-Aid. It'd be like trying to satisfy your hunger with a donut. It'd be like trying to cut your lawn with a pair of scissors. It is insufficient. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Consider John 9 and the man born blind. This man, though born blind, God meets him there. The Lord Jesus meets him there, heals him of his blindness. But he doesn't even know who Jesus is. His words glorify God when he goes and tells the town. But because he doesn't specifically reveal who Jesus is, he's not presenting the gospel. Unless we are explicit about Jesus Christ and the cross, then it's not the gospel. It falls short. Again, our personal testimonies are not the gospel, but they are rather a testament to how the gospel has proved true in our lives. In our remaining time, we hope to grasp the act of sharing our testimonies as an effective tool for our evangelism. If you want, you can flip over to, to John chapter 1. We can look and see this, this story of um, Jesus calling some of his disciples. In John chapter 1, verses 40 and 41, we see the example of Peter and Andrew. Starting in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Here we see that there are two kind of primary witnesses that God uses and provides for the church. The public preaching of the word and the personal testimony of individual Christians. Here we see Andrew, the one who recognizes that Jesus is the Christ, the one whom the Old Testament testifies to, 
goes and personally testifies to his brother, Simon Peter, and says, hey, we found the Christ. Later in Acts, we see that it's Simon Peter who boldly declares the gospel at Pentecost, where 3,000 souls are saved and turn in faith to God. Now, I think that just in a, in a numbers-driven world, we look at those two examples and we see, okay, he shared with one person. That's vastly insignificant compared to what Andrew did by just going to one person and telling them that he had found the Christ. But the Bible never speaks in those reductionistic terms. In fact, it elevates both of these things. As important as, important as the preaching is in proclaiming the gospel, the church necessarily needs a legion of those who are like Andrew, who simply go to others and say, look, I found the Christ. You can know him too. So before we transition to the rest of our time and before we unpack the ways that we can use our personal testimonies as evangelistic tools, I want to pause and see if you have any questions so far. Any questions about what a personal testimony is or isn't? Yes, Alex. Yeah, so toward the end, we're, uh, Alex's question is, um, are, there, are there things we should avoid when sharing our personal testimonies? Um, I think first and foremost, again, if, if somebody walks away from, sharing, uh, from hearing you share your personal testimony and they are uh, maybe more impressed with the way you share about yourself rather than impressed with what God has done, that's a good indicator that you probably have fallen short a little bit. Um, on the positive side of that question, we're going to talk specifically about what you should share. And then you can kind of fill in the gaps with some color. Yeah. 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 Excellent question. So Annabeth's question was, um, what's, how should we think about the ordering? Um, do we necessarily need to share the gospel first, the full gospel, before we share our personal testimonies? Or is it okay to share our personal testimonies before we share the gospel? Um, I think every situation is going to vary. Um, but as we're talking about this morning, um, the sharing of the personal testimony uh, is a, an effective way to ultimately share the gospel. So in that way, we kind of see it as a, as a first step um, in a sense. It doesn't necessarily always have to be that way. Um, but if we use our personal testimonies effectively, we can enter into conversation with somebody share with them how much God has done for us, and then invite them to, to recognize that the same thing can be done in their lives. And then if they're open to that conversation, well, that's where we go in and we kind of parse out some more of those details of what the gospel is. Yeah. Any other questions before we move on? So again, just as we saw with Andrew... He sees, this, he sees the Christ, and he goes and testifies about it. And so he uses that as, in a tool to, as a tool to, to proclaim who Christ is. Now, if you reference your handout, you can see a roadmap of where we're going. We're going to begin by considering three reasons to share your testimony. And then we're going to close by looking at two different passages from Scripture, 
John chapter 4 and Acts chapter 26 and what these teach us about our personal testimonies. So let's first look at these three reasons. To fight fear and doubt in evangelism, we share our personal testimony to encourage others to share the gospel, and we share our testimony to steer conversations with unbelievers toward the good news and to bear witness to its truth in your life. First, to fight fear and doubt in evangelism. Whenever you start to get nervous at the thought of sharing the gospel with someone, or whenever you start to doubt if God really has the power to save the person that he has laid on your heart to tell about the gospel, taking some time to remember how God intersected your own life can be a powerful weapon in your struggle to find boldness and faith. Think about this. Praise God that the person who shared the gospel with you, whether it was a friend, a family member, a coworker, didn't cower in sharing the gospel with you because God used that as a means of saving you. They were bold enough to speak the truth and love to you. We must remember how lost we really were without God. Remember, as Paul instructs the believers in Ephesus in Ephesians 2.12, that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Recall how you, like the preacher and hymn writer John Newton wrote of himself before his conversion, were capable of anything and had not the least fear of God before your eyes nor the least sensibility of conscience. Recall how you were hellbound, how the emptiness of the world's lies gnawed at you, how your heart was cold and hard as a rock, how you were an enemy of God. This comes back to, talking to, uh, to what we talked about last week. In recognizing that we have been saved by much, our heart should be compelled to recognize that we are entirely products of grace, And so then that causes us to look with compassion upon others. As we consider these things, they're not meant to kind of cast us into a pit of self-loathing, but to marvel at what God has done for us. What God has done in pulling us out of that pit and redeeming us. Marvel how, as Paul continues in that passage from Ephesians, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of of the cross. We can marvel as St. Augustine writes in his confessions that God released you from the fetters of lust which held you so tightly and shackled you from the slavery to the things of this world. We can marvel at how God has changed our trajectory, how he rescued us, how he has filled that gnawing void in our lives, how he forgave us of our sins, how he replaced that heart of stone and put within us a heart of flesh that's able to obey him, to please him, how God had made us his friend. The truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, if God can save you and me, he can save anybody. By remembering the miracle and the joy of our own salvation, we should be stirred with boldness in our evangelism and in pursuing the salvation of others. Living in a place and a circumstance, sometimes like like in the Bible Belt, I know things are slowly starting to change in the culture, but living in a place, uh, in a circumstance where the gospel doesn't cost you much can be a very scary thing because even as um, I remember Mitzi was sharing last week, this, we're prone to spiritual amnesia. We're prone to spiritual forgetfulness. 
because the gospel doesn't often cost us much in this life, uh, in the circles that we kind of run in, we're prone to forget how much we've been saved by, how much we've been saved from, and what we are called to do. Part of fighting fear and doubt in evangelism is in first remembering how much God has done for us and how he sovereignly works out our salvation. Second reason, to share your testimony. To encourage others to share the gospel. In a similar way, when we encounter brothers and sisters in the faith who are struggling to be faithful in their own evangelism, or those who are simply apathetic, I think we've all been there, to be apathetic or lethargic in our zeal for seeing the lost come to know Christ, we should share with them how we have seen God at work in our own lives or in their life and challenge them to recall God's sanctifying and saving work in theirs. Uh, when we were in, in Nashville at the Southern Baptist Convention, we attended uh, Miss Church Edgefield. And um, the, the pastor there, Matt McCullough, he described the church, he said kind of in a, in a simple way, we can describe the church as those who simply wait together. We're those who wait together for the returning of the Lord Jesus Christ to come and, and redeem us, to, to make us, to glorify us. I think another, another way that we could think about that is as a church, we are those who are here to help one another remember the grace that has been given to us. There's so much discouragement in the world. There's so many things from social media to talk news that are trying to convince you of who you are and what you should believe. But as the body of Christ, we have the unique opportunity, the special privilege to each week, each day, whoever we interact with in this local body as University Baptist Church, to remind one another of whose we are in Christ, what God has done for us in saving us. And that is the, the kind of ballast that keeps us straight. It's the compass that helps direct our paths and helps us recognize that our identity is first and foremost that as one who has been fundamentally changed by the gospel and transformed into a new creation in Christ. And so we must encourage one another. Encouragement in that way costs you absolutely nothing. And so part of sharing the gospel, sharing our own personal testimonies, is to remind one another, to encourage one another of what we have been saved from. It's easy for us to talk about where we're from, what we do, or what kinds of things we're into, but conversations among Christians should be full of testimonies about what the Lord has done and what he is doing. Do you know the stories of how your friends or how the people in your small group or the, how the folks you regularly sit near at church came to know the Lord? Do you, when you pray for your friends and fellow church members, thank God for how he saved them? how he has brought faithful witness into their lives and brought them to repentance and faith? Is this something you regularly do? Even when you're sitting across the table from a brother or sister in Christ, brother and sister from this congregation, and you're praying, God, we give you thanks that you saw fit to save this person, that you saw fit to, 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 to save both of us and bring us into covenant relationship. If not, make it a point, even this week, of asking someone to tell you their story of grace. Or simply initiate, it may feel a little bit weird, but initiate and share with them the testimony of God's grace in your own life. 
if we're so zealous, if, if truly the, the joy of the Lord has gripped our hearts and caused us to recognize what we've been saved from, oh my gosh, we're going to want to tell everyone. Like a kid on Christmas morning, we're going to run into our brother or sister's room and tell them about the toy that we just got. That pales in comparison to recognizing the gift that we've been given in Christ Jesus and the desire that we should have to want and share and tell others. Even if you think that your, your personal testimony doesn't have much significance or if it's kind of a, a plain personal testimony of one who grew up in church, you are still a sinner who's been saved by grace. It's amazing the wonder that can come from hearing the stories of grace in others' lives. A third and final reason to share your testimony, one of three reasons, we use them to steer conversations with unbelievers toward the good news and to bear witness to its truth in your life. This comes back to Annabeth's question about kind of some of that ordering. Ultimately, we want to recognize that personal testimonies can be a means by which we steer conversations into sharing the gospel. That's ultimately the purpose of sharing our personal testimonies. Yes, we do it to encourage. Yes, we do it to fight fear and doubt. But as it, as it pertains to specifically sharing the good news of the gospel with sinners, we're to use our personal testimonies to steer the conversation toward the gospel. You know, one of the best things about being in the driver's seat, you're the only one who has your hands on the steering wheel. It doesn't matter how many backseat drivers there are, at the end of the day, their hands are not on the steering wheels, and so they will not direct where the car is going. When I lived in North Carolina, I had a friend of mine who, by God's grace, he was sanctified in many ways, but one of the ways he was not sanctified was in his patience on the road. So anytime I was driving and he was sitting in the passenger seat, I would purposely get behind the slowest car. I would purposely sit at the red light a couple of seconds after it turned green. It would cause his blood to boil. There was just a, a unique pleasure that I felt in causing him a hard time, ultimately because my hands were on the steering wheel and I could direct what we did and where we were going. When we share our personal testimonies, our object as those who are kind of controlling the conversation, by God's grace, under the power of the Spirit, we can steer those conversations to the gospel. It takes courage. It takes even, like my friend may have felt, that, that kind of discomfort, like this secondhand embarrassment, like why is this dude just waiting? All these cars are honking at him. When we share our personal testimonies, you might feel some of that kind of that discomfort, like, oh man, is this person going to, what, what are they about to do? Are they going to try to convert me? What, what's going on here? And yet, we have to be bold. We have to be courageous and as best as we can to be as wise as serpents to, to steer those conversations to the gospel. We'll think about some practical ways to do that here in just a moment. So as we consider that, I want us to turn now, if you're still in your Bibles in John chapter 1, to John chapter 4. And we're going to look at this account of the woman at the well where Jesus meets uh, this woman. So as we think about steering those conversations with unbelievers toward the good news, to bear witness to the truth of the gospel, 
we recognize that we can tap our testimonies to point unbelievers to Jesus. So as we look at at John chapter 4, we're going to notice two primary points from the account of the woman at the well. First, she testifies about her experience with the Christ, and then she points them to him. The beginning of this story documents Jesus journeying through Samaria. Weary from his journey, he, he stops there in this, this Samaritan village, and he stops at a well, and there he encounters this prostitute. Let's read together, starting in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to drink water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is too deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he, t- he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? There's a lot that we could say about this passage, the way that Jesus directly goes against societal and religious standards of the day by willingly entering into an exchange with a Samaritan woman, the way he reads the woman's heart and reveals her sin, the way he in mercy holds himself out to her as the fountain of life, the way that he affirms God's revealed will through the nation of Israel while at the same time opening up the kingdom of God to the Gentiles. 
It's pretty amazing, this Jesus we serve. But let's look more closely at what the woman does in response to her encounter with Jesus. If you glance down at verse 13, you see that Jesus tells her that everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that he gives will never be thirsty again. And then in verse 25, the woman says that she knows the Messiah is coming, that he will tell the people all things, and Jesus reveals himself to her and says that he is that Messiah. Here we see again that personal testimonies are first and foremost a testament to what God has done in revealing himself to us, making us aware of our sin and causing us to recognize the need to turn from our sin and trust him for salvation. So it was with this woman at the well and so it is with us this day. But now let's look at what the woman does in response. Verse 28 says that she left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This woman was so amazed by what Jesus had revealed to her by making her aware of her sin and the need for the Christ to to save her from that sin that she tells a type of big fish story. You know the big fish story? You have a buddy who went out to the lake and he was out there by himself so he doesn't have anybody to testify to it but he comes back and says that he caught a fish that was this big. Each time he tells the story somehow his arms get longer and longer and longer. He's embellishing this story. This woman, after Jesus reveals himself to her, says, come, see a man who told me everything, all these things, everything that I ever did. It would have been impossible for the Lord Jesus in such a short amount of time to tell her everything she ever did. But what's remarkable about this testimony is that the woman seems to recognize that all the things that she has done, the laundry list of her sins, the never-ending cycle of shame, the furthest reaches of her painful memory, they were known by Jesus, but they didn't cause Jesus to recoil. Instead, they drew Jesus closer to her. Our sin can cause deep shame that would tempt us to despair, to hide from others, to feel unclean. Just as Adam and Eve hid in the garden once they realized they were naked and that they had sinned against a holy God. But we must remember that it is in this story, the woman's sin and shame that qualify her to receive the care, the attention, the love, and ultimately the salvation that comes from Jesus. And by God's grace, this woman, rather than turning back to her sin, turning back to her shame, instead looks to Jesus. She looks to him and sees, this is the Christ. This is the only one who can save me from this sin and from this shame. Spurgeon has some some beautiful words here. He says, it is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. For he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves 
instead of Christ. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doing, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. This woman, after looking to Jesus, recognizing what he had done for her, she had to go and tell somebody. She had to recount what just happened. And that's exactly what she does. Back in the town, the text says that she goes and finds a group of people, people who presumably have known her all of their lives in this small town, and she tells them how Jesus, one whom she had never met, knew about all her marriages, all her sins. This scene has somewhat of a hurried feel, as if she's testifying on the run while ushering her audience to go and see for themselves. Do you feel this type of zeal in sharing with others what God has done for you? What God has done in revealing the Lord Jesus to you and helping you to see that he is your savior? Before we move to the next observation, we should make an application here. Sometimes it's the people who know us best, family members who have been with us through the rough teenage years, friends we used to party with, co-workers who witnessed our grumbling or dishonesty or gossip at work before we became Christians. Sometimes it is those people, the ones who know us best, that we fear sharing our testimony with and sharing the gospel with. We feel that they'll call us out and not take the changes in us seriously. We'll feel like a bit of an imposter, but this is where we must take cues from the woman at the well. We shouldn't shrink back from sharing the gospel with the people who know us best. As a matter of fact, these may be the very people we should pray about sharing with the most. How amazing of a testimony it would be to explain to them God's grace and saving power, how God has changed our lives, how we were lost but became found, and then proclaim to them how Jesus changed all of that on the cross. But this woman doesn't just testify about her experience. She doesn't just tell what Jesus has done for her. She points them to do the same. After testifying, she says, look to this Jesus. She directs them back up to the well. And the testimony of these Samaritans is pretty revealing. Afterward, the text tell us that they said to the woman, if you see this down in, in verse 39, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know indeed that this is the Savior of the world. That's where, that's a real kind of gut check. Because as we share our personal testimony and then we use it as a means of sharing the gospel, what is the response of these Samaritans? They praise God, they don't praise us. <laughs> and so as heralds of the good news, we must be okay with being insignificant. We must be content to simply be that, to be heralds who proclaim the news. And then once they're introduced to Jesus, once they realize their sin and trust in Christ for their salvation, 
They're giving all the praise to God, not praise to who we are and what we've done in our evangelism. That's ultimately the goal. We want people to be amazed by who God is and what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ, not with who we are or what we share. It is never our testimony alone that brings someone to salvation. God is the one who saves. But even as we see here in John chapter 4, these testimonies are an incredible way to steer those conversations to the gospel. Unlike the woman at the well, we don't have the option of literally taking our friends and family to Jesus, but instead we do have the, the charge and the ability to introduce them to Jesus through the gospel. We can show them this word, even as this gospel testifies about who Jesus is, we can introduce them to that. Before we transition on to this general framework for sharing our testimonies from Acts 26, I want to pause, see if you have any questions. Yeah, Cole. Great insight and question by Cole. Cole um, referenced what I said about um, sometimes the, the gospel can be very difficult to share with those who know us well because they know our past lives of sin. Um, but Cole noted that we also sometimes can uh, find it difficult to, to share with those who know us best because once we have been uh, saved, once we identify with Christ, well, then they still see us afterward. And so when we sin, when we get frustrated, when we sin against others, whenever we do something that is not honoring to God, they see that as well. And it's kind of like, oh, there doesn't seem to be much integrity here. So um, what's some kind of just practical advice for, for thinking through that? Um, I think humility is so key here. Um, we have to recognize that this side of heaven, none of us have arrived. Um, even though um, we are justified, that is, we are made right before God in salvation. Um, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Our standing before God is secure. Um, we are not yet glorified. That is, we're, we're not yet made perfect. Um, that only happens whenever the Lord Jesus returns and, and glorifies us all. And so um, the, the ongoing process is, is that word that you, you may have heard of called sanctification, where we're slowly being made more like Christ. And so that's where humility has to enter in, and we have to share with others, hey, these are some ways that I'm prone to sin. Um, I wonder if you can help keep me accountable to that or to, to call me out whenever you see that. I recognize that I'm, I, I still am prone to sin. This, this, this uh, sin still wages war within me. You know, as Paul says, that which I desire to do, I cannot do. That which I know I must do, I sometimes struggle to do. I think that, that's true of all of us. And so just admitting that and saying, help me. That's why we can't live our Christian lives alone. We need help. I think confession of sin is also incredibly important, both personal confession of sin but even as we do prayers of confession, corporate prayers of confession here at UBC, as you sit and listen to those prayers of confession, do you kind of tune out and just listen to the prayer? Or do you recognize that's a corporate prayer? We're, we're kind of all uh, 
gathering to, together and we're engaging in that prayer together, we're seeing the ways that that prayer is exposing sin in our own heart and confessing it to the Lord. But then personally, if you have a close friend, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's just a, a close friend of yours that you regularly meet with for discipleship, confess that sin to them. That's a, that, that's a, a great way of, of humbling yourself, kind of admitting your vulnerability, admitting the things that you're, you're, uh, you've fallen short in. Um, but you have remorse over and you desire to, to um, kind of grow in. And so by confessing that sin, not only are you sharing with them what you've, what you've done in kind of affronting a holy God, but also a kind of genuine, humble desire to, to move past that. But if you keep it hidden, never going to move past that. Very good question. John was noting that um, even with, with unbelievers, we must recognize that, yeah, that sin is still, it's, uh, it's not that we're, we're sinless, but we feel conviction over our sin. Um, I think that's, that's even a compelling witness as we, like, engage with, if you can, if you, like, even just go to a, a non-Christian coworker and you tell them, um, hey, what I did to you was wrong. The way that I spoke about that other person behind their back was wrong. They're probably going to be taken a little bit aback by that. Nobody does that. <laughs> and so by doing that, they're going to recognize, whoa, that's odd. Why would they do that? And then that can give you even more inroads. Um, yeah, that's, that's good insight. Did you have a question, Lisa? I think that could be an insight, uh, kind of application point that might be drawn from the text. I don't know exactly that um, that's what that's indicating there. It's reference to the Old Testament. Is that right? I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Could be wrong in that. Critically engaging with the text, though. We'd love to see it. Did you have a question, Danny?
Yeah. Hmm. Well, let's, let's move on here uh, to this general framework for sharing your testimony um, from Acts chapter 26. If you want to flip there in your Bible, um, we're going we're gonna to walk through this passage uh, quickly. So this is, this is now kind of the practical part where we help you see what, what's a general framework that I can use for sharing my personal testimony with others. And it kind of boils down to these four elements. And so I would encourage you, even this week, um, take some time to, to write out your personal testimony. You can use this framework kind of as a guide. You can describe what your life was like before Christ, how you came to repent of your sins and believe in the gospel, what your life has been like since knowing Christ, and then how sh- the person you're sharing with can experience the same thing. In Acts 26, we'll see a uh, kind of a real-life example from the Apostle Paul um, but first, before we think about that, um, just, let's just briefly walk through these points, what your life was like before Christ. So this is not a place to, to brag about your sin or to minimize your sin, but instead a place to talk about where you were apart from Christ. Nobody is born as a Christian. By God's grace, some come to know him early, but all of us, regardless, were apart from Christ, enemies of God. Talk about it. Talk about this season of your life. Talk about how you used to think about God or sin or Christianity. For me, life before Christ, even though I was saved at an early age through the faithful gospel ministry of my parents, before coming to Christ, I was just a moralistic kid. I thought that, you know, as long as I kind of do good things, as long as I, I please people, then I'm, I'm doing what's right. But in, in, in retrospect, I recognize that moralism doesn't save anybody. And so even though I had a, a pretty mild upbringing, I was the son of a pastor. Many uh, of you know who uh, my dad, John, um, and still I was just a moralistic kid. So I was stuck in my sin. No amount of moralism that I tried to fill the bottle with would save me. But then we come to say how we came to repent of our sins and believe in the gospel. Again, some people may have a dramatic circumstances around their conversion, while others may have seemingly less dramatic The point is that there is a time when you turned from your sins and trusted in Christ. Talk about what God did during this time and what it was that you turned to believe in. Talk to them about Christ's death in your place and his resurrection. Share with them how you turned from your sin and how you fully trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This is where we have to be very kind of um, intentional in, in how we we explain and, and describe because we really can put the meat of the gospel in this. And recognizing that all of us are sinners, no matter how dramatic your salvation was. Some of you may think that, man, I just came to know the Lord through VBS when I was six years old. Praise God for that. But you can still share what your life was like before Christ, which is that you were dead in your sins. And that somebody, whether it was a VBS teacher, a Sunday school teacher, a parent, or maybe you had a, a, a dramatic conversion. You were openly uh, living in, in sin, and then God pulled you up out of that. Regardless of what it is, that's where you have the opportunity to clearly share, I was lost, but somebody shared with me the good news of the gospel. And through hearing that gospel, hearing comes, uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, 
by hearing that, that message of the gospel, I was made aware of my sins. I recognized that I had to turn from those sins and that the only thing I could do for my salvation is to trust in Christ and Christ alone. And so we just have to be clear in sharing that. Again, even from my own experience, I had to recognize that my moralism wouldn't save me. But through the faithful gospel ministry of my parents in the home, through faithful Sunday school teachers here at UBC, the Lord used those seeds of the gospel to awaken me to my sin and to cause me to repent and believe in him. Third, we talk about how our life has been like since knowing Christ. This is not a time to highlight how great you are, but instead a time to show them how great Christ is. It's a time to show them your enduring need for the gospel. This comes back to Danny's point, the fact that we constantly are in need of growing in Christ, growing in his grace. We have not arrived. You can take this opportunity to dispel the false ideas that Christianity is for perfect people. No, tell them how Christ is still your savior and how you still need his abundant mercy to cover your proneness to wander. G.K. Chesterton once said on this point, after becoming a Christian, I realized why I feel homesick at home. You can even just kind of enter into an example like this. I'd say personally, this has been a, a salient quote for me, recognizing that, that life in Christ, um, it makes us and should make us feel a little bit dissettled on this, on this earth. Having moved around a lot in, in my life, um, even though the Lord and his providence has brought me back to the place I grew up, having moved around a lot, I think there's been this just kind of earnest longing to be settled, to be in a place that kind of feels like home. Um, and yet there's this, this just kind of interesting feeling that wherever we are, wherever I am, there's still something that's different. I still don't feel completely at home. And so when I think about what, um, what life has been like since knowing Christ, that, that kind of identity of, of one as a pilgrim, one who's journeying in this world to the, that promised land, that, that eternal home in heaven, um, there should be a level of kind of discomfort. I think sharing that, um, even for me, has been a helpful way to kind of turn, steer conversations toward the gospel. And then finally, how the person you're sharing with can experience the same thing. As with any gospel presentation, there must be a call to respond to Christ. It is important when you've shared your personal testimony that you are calling them to repentance, and, and when you're calling them to repentance, to clearly state the fact that you aren't asking them to become like you. Instead, you're calling them to do what the woman at the well did. Come, see Jesus, see the one who knew everything that I ever did, and he will provide rest for your souls. Your testimony should point people to Christ, and your call to repentance should do the same. Before we close, I just want to briefly call your attention to, to Acts 26. This would be a good passage to meditate on in application later this week. You can see Paul's, the way that Paul uses his own personal testimony as a means of sharing the gospel. So in, in verses 1 through 8, we see Paul here standing before King Agrippa. This is a, a Jewish king. Um, and Paul shares uh, what his life was like before Christ. Verse 4, my life. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation. He shares just some of his personal experience. And so he shares what it is behind uh, his life before Christ. If you look at verses 12 through 18, then Paul moves and shares how he came to repent of his sins and believe in the gospel. Many of you know this story, Paul on the road to Damascus, where the light shines down upon him and uh, 
the Lord just radically converts him. So Paul, after sharing what his life was like before Christ to King Agrippa, he then shares how he came to repent of his sins and to believe in the gospel. He, see, he shows him how his eyes were opened and he turned from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. And then in verse 19 through 24, we see that Paul talks about how his life has been like since knowing Christ. Verses 19 through 20, he proclaims, he proclaims this, this gospel. In verses 21 through 23, he talks about how he perseveres in this gospel. I think it's, it's also funny, as we see in, in verse 24, that as Paul is sharing these things, Festus cries out with a loud vo- voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. <laughs> your great language is driving you out of your mind. And so don't be surprised, just as a quick word, don't be surprised that as you share the gospel or even some of what we've talked about, people think that you're insane. They wonder, why does this person extend forgiveness to others? Why does this person... Uh, reorient their time, their values, their money, their vacation time towards spiritual things, they're going to think that you're mad just as they did with progress, uh, with, uh, uh, with our own stories. Again, to quote Pilgrim's Progress, a man there was, though some did count him mad, the more he cast away, the more he had. The world may often be confounded by what life looks like as a Christian, but we, as we recall this experience of what God has done for us should turn others. And then in verses 25 through 29, we see how Paul shares with others how they can experience the same. This is where Paul is pretty clever. And this is where he's intentional in his evangelism and how he shares his personal testimony because he appeals to King Agrippa's Jewish background. So he asks Agrippa if he believes the prophets. Paul himself knows that the prophets testify to who Jesus is. And so Paul kind of puts him in a a tight bind because he knows if really his eyes are going to be open, if he actually does kind of turn from his sins and trust, he sees that these prophets that he believed in as a Jew were actually testifying to the cross, to the Christ. And so again, we see that Paul doesn't simply share his own testimony for the sake of kind of elevating who he is or what God has done for him. Ultimately, he shares it for the purpose of explaining the gospel and calling King Agrippa to repentance. He implores King Agrippa to repent and believe. There must always be a call to repentance and faith. It's funny, you see King Agrippa there in in verse 28 says, In such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? (laughs) It's funny, just, just Paul's zeal in sharing the gospel and sharing his own personal testimony and how um, it has saved him. And then King Agrippa responds. He's, whoa, I, I see what you're doing here, Paul. In such a short time, are you going to persuade me to be a Christian? But then how does Paul respond? Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Paul this madman, this one who is completely out of his mind, he doesn't care. He knows that the power of salvation lies in God, and so he faithfully testifies to this gospel through sharing his own experience of grace. And he wants to persuade King Agrippa to turn from his sins and trust in Christ. 
that's a great model of how we should use our own personal testimonies in sharing the gospel with others and, and trying to persuade them to come believe in the gospel. Again, as the psalmist says at the top of our page, come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. The good news that Paul had experienced and shared with others was not like the one who rode the way of felt needs and shared their testimony. I was this, but now you can have this life too. No, it was the story of how God took a dead rebellious sinner and gave them life and a heart to obey. There's an old gospel hymn called I Cannot Tell It All. It was playing a little bit whenever we first came in. And it says, he's done so much for me, I cannot tell it all. He washed my sins away, I cannot tell it all. He walks and talks with me, I cannot tell it all. He gave me victory, I cannot tell it all. Oh my God, grant us the same level of fervency to recognize he's done so much for me, I cannot tell it all. And as we share our personal testimonies, we are doing the same in that way. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to often behold wondrous things about what you have done for us so that your spirit would cause our hearts to, to turn and to share with others. Oh God, grant us favor as we seek to share the good news of the gospel and give us wisdom and, and prudence and even skill and persuasion as we use our personal testimony as a means of sharing the gospel with others. Oh God, we need your help and we ask for it. In Jesus' name, amen.